Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Jude, verses 5 through 16. Please follow along with me as I read. Now I desire to remind you, even though you have been fully informed of these facts once for all, that Jesus, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their own place of residence, he has kept in eternal chains, in utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, in a way similar to these angels are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, these men, as a result of their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and insult the glorious ones. But even when Michael the archangel was arguing with the devil and debating with him concerning Moses' body, he did not dare to bring a slanderous judgment, but said, May the Lord rebuke you. But these men do not understand the things they slander, and they are being destroyed by the very things that, like rational animals, they instinctively comprehend. Woe to them, for they have traveled down Cain's path, and because of greed, have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Hence, they will certainly perish in Korah's rebellion. These men are dangerous reefs. At your love feast, feasting without reverence, feeding only themselves, they are waterless clouds carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted, wild sea waves spewing out the foam of their shame, wayward stars for whom the utter depths of eternal darkness have been reserved. Now Enoch, the seventh in descent beginning with Adam, even prophesied of them saying, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict every person of all their thoroughly ungodly deeds that they have committed, and of all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders who go wherever their desires lead them, and they give bombastic speeches, enchanting folks for their own gain. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you once again for the opportunity to gather with the saints around the word and worship, whether it's in song or in the text. Lord, we just ask that you would guide us to, uh, as we study this text, guide us. Lord, it's a difficult passage 
And Father, we pray that it's not merely an academic exercise this morning, but one, Lord, as you, as you have promised, that your word does not come back void. And so, Father, we lift this time up to you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Jude, and we are in verse 5, the text that was read this morning. So Jude, if you get to Revelation, again, you've gone too far, just back up one book, and there you are. Jude, verse 5. You know, learning from the past and those who've gone before us is imperative. I mean, think about it. Think, think about the first person who knew that eating particular mushrooms that are poisonous is deadly. I'm so glad for that person that ate those, right? Some of you are not getting this. Let me give you another one. Who figured out that six parts oxygen is required in the chemical formula for dynamite? Not four, not seven. Who determined that you can hold a crocodile's mouth shut with just a rubber band? Uh, we're, we're thankful for those who've gone before us. And some leave great illustrations, some leave poor examples. And Jude, as he has reminding his congregation, in fact, look what he states again in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I have felt compelled instead to write to you to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith. He changes course. He's warning them, and he says in verse 4, it's because there are false teachers. There's godless men and women who've come in. They've crept into the camp. And like cancer, they're starting to eat away at the host. And so Jude, what he does in these next few verses, and we're not going to look at all of those this morning. We'll look through verses 5 and through 10. And then next week, we'll look at the latter part of this section. He first will go back in time and give us examples of what God does with such godless behavior. He then will describe the godless people that we'll see here. So that's the, the track in which we're going in. And you'll see there in verse 5, he begins with, in fact, verses 5 through 7 is one sentence in the Greek. Talk about a run-on. Uh, it is a long sentence. It's what you would not give to first-year Greek students to diagram. <laughs> He'd go on and on and on. Uh, in this long sentence, he gives us one major verb, and that is he wants. I, I want to tell you these things. And then he goes with the infinitive to remind. Remember, he's changed course of action because of the false teachers. And now he comes to this and he goes, I want you to be reminded of some things from the past. Those who've gone before us. And so he's going to give us, in verses 5 through 7, the diabolic trio. No, it's not Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, or Moe, Larry, and Curly, right? But he's going to give us three. And it differs from Peter. If you remember in 2 Peter, he also gives us a diabolic trio. He gives us those from the time of Noah. He'll give us the fallen angels. And then he'll lay out the, the, what we'll see here, the third part, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude, on the other hand, yes, he gives us Sodom and Gomorrah, he gives us the angels, but the first example he gives is the Israelites from the time of the Exodus. It's not a perfect match, but what is intriguing with Jude is he starts with the Jews, then he goes to celestial beings, then he goes to Gentiles, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and what I think he's saying is, it doesn't matter where you fall in this camp, you cannot rebel against a sovereign God. He's going to deal with you. 
And so in verse 5, he says, I want you to remember, I want to remind you, anytime you see this in scripture, you need to sit up and take nourishment. <laughs> because what the author is wanting you to do is to go back and, and pull from the tools that you've gleaned from scripture from the Lord. It's a reminder of these things, the faith that we'll see those who pursue unrighteousness and the consequences thereof. Notice he says, I want to remind you, even though you've been fully informed of these facts once for all. Remember verse 3? Look back at verse 3. He says, I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all. And we talked about that. Faith isn't just that Jesus died and rose again. It's the body of doctrine. He says, you've been given that. You were entrusted that. And consequently, I want you to tap into what you recall and what you've been taught, which he says again in there in verse 5. So he says that once for all, and we talked about that. You might want to go back and look at the notes from last week. But he says, Jesus having saved his people out of the land of Egypt. Exodus is an event that was embedded in the memory banks of the Jewish people. They wrote about it. They sang about it. They even had a dinner once a year to commemorate it. They still do. The Exodus, right, with Pharaoh and all of that and bring, being brought out of slavery out of Egypt. The Lord told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, states, and listen to what he says, failure to remember God's efforts on behalf of Israel, and he's in the context of the Exodus, he says, is a form of godlessness. Isn't that interesting? To forget is to be ungodly. Because you've stripped God out of the equation, and that's exactly what we're going to see with the false teachers these godless men who are leading. We must not forget God's provisions in the past. We are about to embark in our new home. I cannot wait. I don't know about you. In fact, stay for the business meeting. You're gonna, we're going to reveal something really exciting about the new building. Uh, as we move into that new building, my prayer is that we will not forget this was God's hand. We need stones of remembrance, whether that is corporately or individually or as a family. I hope you have those points. Whether it's a picture that's hung on the wall, whether it's, I don't know, some trinket that sits on a ledge, but every time you see it, you go, that is what the Lord did. That's God's hand. And the Israelites were told not to forget. Now, if you notice something very unique, uh, if you have the ESV or you have the Net Bible, you'll notice the text says that Jesus having saved his people. That's interesting rendering, isn't it? In fact, if you had the King James or the NIV or the New American Standard, it says the Lord, not Jesus. And that fits because it's, the Old Testament portrays it's the Lord who has brought the people out of the land of Egypt. However, based upon more textual critic science that's been done in the last several years, manuscripts that have been discovered, research that has been done, the latest English versions, the ESV and that, are translating this as Jesus 
And you say, well, why? Why would you do that? Well, one, again, is the quality and the quantity of the Greek manuscripts that we have. Jesus is a more difficult reading. You would expect a scribe to put Lord, not Jesus there. So the more difficult reading is often the preferred reading. And more significantly, I would argue, Jude has already identified himself as a servant to Christ. Remember, this is his half-brother. He's elevated Christ, and he's saying this is the pre-incarnate one. Jesus was there at the Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says of the Israelites in the wilderness, they put Christ to the test. And so what do we see here? This God the Father, Christ the Son being held in the same realm because they are one and the same ontologically. And it's Christ who we see here being elevated in Jude, which is highlighting his deity and his rule. That is significant, especially for the godless teachers who are trying to strip Christ of the influence upon the community. And Jude's saying, no, 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 <laughs> this is the one. In fact, remember what he says here in verse four, that these religious rulers deny the master and Lord. There it is, Jesus Christ. They deny him just like the Israelites did in the Exodus. It's significant. And notice the consequence. Jude says they were destroyed. That term occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And it's always used in the context of someone trying to undo God's plan. And what does God do? He takes out a paddle. <laughs> he spanks. And here, it, the text tells us they are destroyed. Now, what is Jude referring to? If you remember in Numbers 13 and 14, they are about to enter the promised land, and they send 12 spies into the land. Remember the song in Sunday school? Some of you are not. Ten, uh, 12 men went to spy in Cana. 10 were bad and 2 were good. What do you think they saw in Cana? 10 were bad and 2 were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw God was in it all. Now you can see why I'm not singing the choir, right? <clears throat> But the, the point is, right, 12 spies were sent. 10 came back and said, no way, Jose, we're not going in. And two said, oh, yes, God goes before us. We must go. So what are the, how do the Israelites respond? What does Numbers tell us in, verse, in chapter 14? Listen to what the Israelites state. And all the Israelites murmured against Moses and Aaron. That term is loaded. Because who are they ultimately upset with? God. He's the one who appointed Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if we had only died in the land of Egypt. <laughs> you just imagine God. Fine, I can have that arranged. Right? <laughs> if only we had perished in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us into the land only to be killed by the sword? That our wives and our children should become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt they were slaves. So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Who is acting like God? The Israelites. This is why Josephus said, it is godlessness when you forget who is in charge. God's judgment of the Israelites was fast and furious, if you recall. He said, fine, you're going to wander for another 40 years, and anyone over the age of 20 is going to croak in the wilderness, except for the two good spies. That's 40 years to be reminded you were an idiot. 
right? <laughs> you should have known better. You look at this text, and, and this is heavy stuff. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, when we come to the principles, I want to look at it from a positive viewpoint. And you'll see this in your notes. The master, the Lord, is faithful to his covenant he has made with his people. He will keep his promises. The Israelites should have remembered that. Their problem is they were questioning, well, they weren't questioning the how, they were questioning the who. The character of God is not up for discussion. Once someone starts to question God's character, that is his love, his holiness, his justice, his fairness, they are placing themselves on the same footing as God, and this becomes the basis for, I would argue, all sin. Remember, this was Satan's tactic back in the garden in Genesis 3. You know, Eve, if you, if you would just take this, eat of it, you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. <laughs> the Israelites testified to the seriousness of doubting the Lord's character. Oh, we may not know how God is going to operate. And James says, great, go to the Lord who gives wisdom but to doubt who God is, that's a whole different ballgame. And lest we forget, we're, we're called to serve the Lord, are we not? Faithfully, the privileges that have been lavished upon us as believers comes with it responsibility. And what are we not to forget? Go back to verse 1. Look what Jude says. To those who are called, wrapped in the love of God, and kept for Jesus Christ. Wow. God keeps his promises. Just ask the Israelites. He told them, you're going to the promised land. They went, but not all of them. What a bummer to look at it on the other side, the land of Moab, to look over and see it and to realize you ain't going because you blew it. The connections with the false teachers don't miss this. He says, you're like the generation of Moses and the Exodus. He's not done. In verse 6, he now equates them with the angels. He says, you also know that the angels who did not keep within their proper domain, but abandoned their place of residence. Now, what is this referring to? And there's a variety of interpretations. I believe Jude is referring to Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it tells us that the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind and their offspring were the Nephilim. The sons of God in Jewish writings usually refer to angels, not always, but usually. In fact, in Job 1, Job will speak of the sons of God and he's referring to angelic beings. Genesis 6 is interpreted in Jewish writings in the what we call the intertestament period between the Old Testament and the New, those 400 years up through the first century. Interpreted Genesis 6, the sons of God, as angels, fallen angels who had relationship with human beings. Such as, if I, Jubilees, even Josephus, the Jewish historian, cites it as such. First Enoch which is a book that becomes very significant in our study of Jude. We're going to talk about it here a little bit later. Verse 14, Enoch is mentioned by name, but there's also some other connections. You say, well, I know it's, if you're like me, it's been a while since I read through First Enoch. So let me tell you a little bit about First Enoch. 
It's an apocalyptic book, which means it's, it's looking to the end. Christianity is apocalyptic religion. We're looking for Christ to return, aren't we? This is not it. Yay. Uh, and so we're apocalyptic. Enoch was apocalyptic. It was a Jewish writing from the 4th century B.C., before Christ, named after Enoch. But this book lays out God's judgment of the unrighteous, what the end will hold to. And of course, it's a blessing to the reader. The reason you see a lot of these apocalyptic books rising up in the inner testament period is that the Jews are suffering. Foreign powers have come in, etc. And so they're longing to be rescued. And first Enoch highlights this. And first Enoch tells us that the sons of God are angels. This seems to be further supported in Jude. Look what he says in verse 7. They pursued a natural desire in the same way similar to the angels. Well, whatever interpretation you take of these particular fallen angels, they're not all demons. This is just a subset because we're told in the text they are kept by chains in outer darkness waiting the end. And so Jude or Peter referred to this, these groups as well. What does this tell us? The Lord is serious about his obedience, about his design and purpose. And that's the second principle there in your notes. The angels did not keep within their proper domain, abandon their place of residence. Psalm 33, 11 states, the Lord's decisions stand forever. His plans abide through the ages. The Israelites couldn't thwart it. Celestial beings, created beings, could not do it either. Instead, we are called, aren't we, to glorify our Lord, unlike the angels. A, a day of judgment awaits for all those who fail to glorify the Lord Almighty. And, and what a privilege, don't we? The Lord doesn't need us to have his name glorified on earth, but he allows us to do that. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. <laughs> Isn't that great? We have the privilege and the honor of glorifying the Lord to participate. So you have the generation from the time of the Exodus as exhibit A. You've got the angels as exhibit B. And he's not done. And this is the, the one that everyone's familiar with in Jewish writings. They're the, the prime example of disobedience. And that's Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah and its neighboring towns since they indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, it says they suffered the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah certainly are prime examples for sexual deviance, but they were also noted in Jewish writings for not only that, but their arrogance, their lack of hospitality, the disregard for the poor, and their gluttony. Obviously, Jude here is highlighting their immorality. It's interesting. It's a loaded term. It, it, it kind of encompasses all sexual deviance, whether it's premarital sex, sex with foreigners, prostitutions, orgy, culty activity, general lusting. All of it falls into this. Some English versions have, they went after strange flesh, flesh which clearly, I think Jude is highlighting 
they have deviated from God's plan as created in, from the time of creation. They've moved away from God's path of living right within a heterosexual marriage relationship. And he says, fire was unleashed upon them. Just as God judged the Israelites and their disobedience, just as he judged the angels and will judge them, same with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can take the fire two ways here, and scholars debate. It could be the literal fire, which we know destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but some would argue it's, a, it's also referring to the eternal fire that awaits them. Well, what do we do with this? Let me give you a principle here. The master has established guidelines in keeping with his holiness Sodom and Gomorrah display the judgment that awaits those who fail to walk in accordance with God's standards. Think about it. Both the angels and the residents there in what is now the Dead Sea area failed to fulfill their duty and responsibility as God had established. And so thus they become an example. A while back, I was standing at the checkout line in the grocery store, and this young child was throwing horrific fit. I mean, it was awful. And the mother looked at Johnny, and she kind of looked at me, but she looked at Johnny and said, you cannot act this way. And Johnny goes, no. And the mother looked up at me, and I, I'm sure that I had looked like a deer in headlight. My eyes were as big as basketballs. I'm like, oh my word, you know? And she looked at me and she goes, well, what can you do? It's the terrible twos. And I thought, I know what my mama would do, but okay, that's nice. Sadly, there are a whole lot of individuals who've not grown out of the terrible twos. One commentator writes, in this very context, he states, the challenge for people of all ages is to keep the terrible twos, two-year-olds within us in check. Human nature does not want to be told what to do. And God says, I'm in charge. This is how it's going to be. And if it's not, there are consequences. The false teachers want to throw that upside down and they want to live life their way. They want to reestablish the rules. And remember, these aren't people outside the camp. These aren't pagans out there that Judah's addressing. No, these are pagans who are in the camp. The church is in danger. It was then, it is now. People who, who've stripped the gospel and have made it, molded it to their own image. And that was the problem with the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are called to live holy lives. 1 Timothy 4, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine that you have been entrusted. We must be discerning. We have limited resources. We need to be proactive and diligent, whether it's vetting members or vetting those that are serving in the church. We must maintain biblical separation from those who deny Christ and the fundamental doctrines of the word. And so, we have these three past examples. But Jude is not done. He now comes to the present. He says, just as God did A, B, and C, he now comes to them and he says in verse eight, yet these men, and we could debate on who exactly they are, but these are the godless men, the leaders that have crept into the church as a result of their dreams defile the flesh. And you say, what kind of dreams were they having? 
Some would argue this is, they were using this to tell I'm more spiritual because I had, I saw Jesus last night. You also had bad pizza, but who's counting, right? So, you know, I saw Jesus last night, and so I have this divine appointment. Some have argued that. I think it's simply individuals who are out of touch with reality. They're in dreamland. They're like freshmen at college. <laughs> I mean, it's like, get a clue. They have fanciful ideas of who they are and how God should operate in their system. It goes back to Satan's lie. You'll be like a God. <laughs> or you'll be like God, which is even worse. And notice he says they're guilty, these dreamers of three things. Number one, they are immoral. They are corrupt. And that, the, the idea here is of pollution. In other words, not only are they corrupt, but they're, they're permeating into the camp. It's really bad, is the idea. They're contaminating the whole thing. Secondly, they're rebels. They're unwilling to submit. Now again, think about the three groups we just talked about and how they fit in here, correct? And then he said, third, they are slanders. They dis display a disdain. Notice it says for the glorious ones, God's representatives. Psalm 12, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? You want a reality check? Evaluate your words you used yesterday or that day at the end of the day think through how did I use my lips whether that's verbally non-verbally social media how am I using my communication Psalm 73 they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue I love this walks through the earth you ask, well, who are the glorious ones? Well, Hebrews 1 tells us that the angels are the Messiah's agents. And I think based on the immediate context, we're talking about the good angels. <laughs> Don't you love it? Fallen angels interfere with earthly affairs, as we saw earlier. Godless men and women appear to be interjecting from earth verbal criticism on heavenly affairs. And, and you can just see the Lord saying, mind your own business. <laughs> I put you here. This is where you're to serve. So they're immoral. They're rebels. And they are slanders. These daydreamers. And then he goes to Michael. He says, now, Michael, the archangel. Now, he's not referred to, Michael's never referred to as the archangel in scripture. He's referred to as the prince, the guardian of Israel and Daniel. Uh, in Jewish writings, in the Testament period, he is referred to as an archangel. But he says, think about Michael, folks. Michael was an archangel, was arguing with the devil, debating with him concerning Moses' body. He did not dare to bring a slander's judgment, but said, may the Lord rebuke you. So he uses this example, and this is loaded. Now, before we get to this, you're going to see, and we'll look at this next week as well, Jude gives us three passages from scripture or three examples from the Old Testament and then he illustrates it with a what we call a non-canonical or extra canonical history he did that already here and he's going to do it again he's going to give us another three examples from the Bible and then he's going to illustrate it with a non-canonical you say why it, 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 Jude is quoting here or appears to be quoting I should say 
from an event that's found in the assumption of Moses. And you say, well, I don't have that in my Bible or First Enoch, you are correct. These are extra canonical books. Now, you need to put your thinking hat on for a moment. This is very important though. Every time I taught New Testament survey, there were a couple issues that always came up among the students, 18 to 22 year olds. And one of the, every semester, how do we know this is true? Why these 66 books? Why not books such as First Enoch? And when Jude quotes from First Enoch, or it appears, and the assumption of Moses, you go, well, are they inspired? How do we do with this? You got a little box in your notes. This is free. We're going to do a little excursion for a minute. But this is so important. You'll notice there are four reasons that here that we need to keep in mind. Number one, Jude never cites that these books are scripture. There is a formula that's used, a Greek term, graphe, uh, meaning holy writings or whatever. He never does that with First Enoch, Assumption of Moses. Already there's a distinction, and we know from Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that that was the end of the prophetic age. Even the Jewish writings later tell us that's it. There's nothing, the, the Council of Jamnay in 200, the Jewish Council, 200 AD, they do not cite any canonical inter, uh, intertestament books as part of the canon. Secondly, Jude never cites these, not only does he not cite these as scripture, citing the event doesn't mean that the entire book is true. He's not saying just because he quotes this one statement from First Enoch or the Assumption of Moses that those books are true. You say, well, give me an example. Paul, in Titus 1, he quotes a Greek philosopher now, he's not saying the Greek philosopher is true on all fronts, but he is saying the Greek philosopher is true on this, and that is the Cretans are lazy liars and gluttons. That's a whole other subject, right? That's from Titus 1. Jude and these non-canonical books are going back, I would argue, to a common tradition in Judaism. In fact, a more recent study in 2017 argues that Probably Jude is not quoting from First Enoch here in this book or quoting from the Assumption of Moses. If he is, it is a very, very free translation. I would argue there's a common source that First Enoch is going to and Jude is going to. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul refers to the names of the magicians that opposed Moses. You will not find them in the Old Testament. Where did he get that? I would argue it's a tradition, a, a true tradition that has been preserved through the ages among the Jewish community. And I would argue the same. Let me give you a fourth thing that I think is very important. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul says that they are not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now why would he say that? Because books such as First Enoch loved to talk about genealogies. <laughs> in fact, First Enoch is going to argue that the sin in this world is due to angels. Jude is going to say it goes back to human beings. Genesis 3. I believe one of the reasons Jude is citing from First Enoch and looking to, to the assumption of Moses is to use the literature of the false teachers and throwing it back at them. So you think this is valid? Let me point a couple things out to you. So it's very significant what's going on here. Jew never said those writings are inspired. 
But what he is citing, I would argue, is true for the sake of the, the tradition that has been passed down, if he is even citing them. So let's go back. Jude says that it's Michael. Michael, again, we said is a prince, the great prince, or the chief of the angels, the protector of God's chosen people, according to Daniel and Daniel 10, Daniel 12. And where does the story originate that Michael is protecting the body of Moses? Where, where in the world do we get this? Well, Deuteronomy 34, if you remember, the Lord buries Moses. I think the main reason is so that the Israelites didn't uh, have an idol. They didn't come to worship Moses or this place. No one knows even today where the corpse lies. But interesting, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament... And another Jewish historian writer in the first century, it says that the angels assisted God in bearing Moses. Interesting. Whatever the case, we see here that there's a slanderous judgment being delivered. Most people believe that Satan was seeking the body of Moses, and the accusation is he does not deserve to be in your presence, God, because he murdered an Egyptian. He's a murderer! So he's mine. And God, don't you love this? Whatever the source is, the fact is God has lavished his grace, his forgiveness on Moses. He does that on us. God chose Moses. He loves him and he's kept him for the final day just as he's done for everyone who professes Jesus as their savior. It's how the righteous can stand before a holy God. And Michael here is trying to defend or preserve and care for, and we meet the slander who we all know is Satan. Remember, Satan entered the whole scene in the, the book of Job. He tried to accuse Job, and God had to step in. In Zechariah, the high priest Joshua, we have Satan trying to prosecute him as well. And the angel of the Lord, listen to what it said in, in Zechariah 3. May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Notice what the text says here in verse 9. Watch this. What does Michael say? May the Lord rebuke you. It's identical to what is said in Zechariah. In other words, Michael knows this is not his role. It's God. The Israelites forgot that in the wilderness. The angels forgot that God is in charge. Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going to write the whole, rewrite the script. Not Michael. And what a contrast with these false teachers, because notice what he says in verse 10. These men do not understand these things. They slander. They're being destroyed by the very things. They're like irrational animals that instinctively comprehend. Notice the contrast. Michael acts in wisdom. The non, the godless, they're foolish. Michael understands, the godless are ignorant. Michael displays self-control, the godless are impulsive. Michael preserves his standing before the Lord, the godless corrupt themselves. It's interesting, there's so many legal terms here in verse 9 as Michael engages Satan over Moses' body. It's very interesting. But ultimately, he turns it over to the Lord. These false teachers, these godless ones in verse 10, we're told, have instincts like irrational animals. 
we used to have a, a beagle named Nimrod. Um, if you know, Nimrod was the hunter in the Old Testament. Uh, and beagles think through their nose. They don't, I don't think they have a brain. And unfortunately, Nimrod got smashed by a car. Oh, I know. Because he was thinking with his nose. And Jude says, these false teachers are like beagles. They only do what's instinct and they're not thinking. They're not wise. Without a moral compass, the sense of right and wrong, it's gone. And ultimate destruction. What are the principles? As you see in your notes, the master serves as the sovereign Lord who judges all. Michael understood this. The Sixth Amendment promises us a right to a fair trial. <laughs> I was reading one lawyer's website this week. It said, uh, you're not going to get a fair trial, so hire me, right? Um, ultimately, is what he's saying. Well, I got great news for you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because the sovereign Lord is judge, justice will be executed. Because the sovereign Lord is judge, nothing goes unnoticed because the sovereign Lord is judge, the righteous will be vindicated. And because the sovereign Lord is judge, Satan will not win. Just ask Michael, the prince of the angels. We need to live our lives in confidence that knowing that our sovereign Lord is judge. We are called to submit and allow the Lord to lead. Randy Alcorn makes this great statement. He says, in the day that we stand before our master and maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many called us great, how many considered us fools. <laughs> it will not matter whether schools and hospitals were named after us or whether our estate was large or small, whether our funeral drew 10,000 or none. It will not matter what the newspapers or history books said or didn't say. What will matter is one thing and one thing only, what the master thinks of us. So church, through a quick view of the bad and the batter, we're called to serve faithfully, glorify the Lord, live holy lives, and submit to our master. You know, all of this would be impossible apart from what Christ has accomplished for us. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's where you just start. <laughs> the awesomeness of this truth, of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, can easily grow cold, can't it? Life's busyness, its appointments, disappointments, its sufferings, can quickly diminish the clarity of this great truth. This week I cleaned a couple of the windows from the inside, like, whoo, I didn't realize how filmy they were, the clarity that could be brought. And sadly, that can happen with the cross. As believers, we can allow things to start building cataracts over the truth. And I think that is one major reason why it's an ordinance in the church to remember, <laughs> to recall what Christ has done for us. And that's what we call communion. <laughs> and so as we come to communion this morning, let me challenge you as we spend a little few moments in prayer to recall the gift that God has lavished on us. We need to note how we are to live a life that, God, that glorifies him. The past has shown us what happens when folly is there and the false teachers, as Judas described, demonstrate 
it's easy for the terrible twos to sink in. So let's spend some time in prayer before we come to the communion table. difficult passage this morning, difficult that it's a, it's a sad commentary on your creation. Both Jew and Gentile, even angels, fail to submit to your authority. And Father, this morning we're reminded once again of what you've done for us. Those who know your son as their personal savior come to an understanding of our, our sin We've confessed that and accepted the sacrifice that your son made on the cross. Lord, we're called to glorify you, and it's easy. Think of the Puritan writer, John Owen, who said, the custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The course of the world takes away the shame of it. Father, we need to be very in tuned with what you have done, and we need to be very in tune with our lives that they reflect your holiness. Forgive us, O oh Lord. Forgive us even this week of where we have fallen short. Lord, we want to be holy vessels for you that glorify you. So Father, allow that to be in our lives. Give us the continued power of the Spirit to live faithfully for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, For what I received from the Lord, I've passed on to you. That the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. It was a symbol of his body. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he, he took the cup. These are great object lessons. As the bread is crushed between the teeth, it's a reminder of what he sacrificed, but the blood is also that which was spilled for us. And Paul said he took the cup after supper, and Jesus said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your calling us. Thank you for wrapping your love around us. And thank you for keeping us until the day when our Savior, your Son, appears, Jesus, in whose name we pray.